episode number 112 of the Between the Cracks podcast. I am your host, Bill, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chris. Now, Chris, tonight we are taking on one of my favorite topics, a locked room mystery. Now, for those of you not familiar with a locked room mystery, allow me to explain. By definition, a locked room mystery is a crime, typically a murder, which is committed in circumstances under which it appears impossible for the perpetrator to enter the crime scene, commit the crime, and leave undetected. So basically what we're dealing with is a case of who done it. So the case that we're going to be talking about tonight, Chris, is the cream of the crop when it comes to locked room mysteries. We're going back to one of my favorite places and time periods, New York City in the Roaring Twenties. So I'm telling you right now, this case truly has it all. So bud, without any further ado, let's get right into it. Tonight, we are taking on the locked room mystery and the near impossible murder of one Mr. Isidore Fink. So, Chris, at this time, I'm going to ask you to kindly hop into the BTC-TM. That's right, the Between the Cracks time machine. And let's go back to 1929 New York City. More specifically, let's go back to March 9th of 1929. Uh, time machine? Uh, This is uh, just a blank cardboard box. Chris, please, we are on a shoestring budget here at BTC. Just get in the goddamn box and let's go. Okay. Uh, blue balls, you can come too. Chris, here we are, the hustle and bustle of New York City in the roaring 20s. More specifically, we are right in front of number 4 East 132nd Street in Harlem, New York. Bud? That is where one Mr. Isidore Fink ran a business, lived, and ultimately met his demise. So, but before we get into all of that, why don't you give us a little bit of a rundown as to who Isidore Fink is, or unfortunately in this case, was. Chris, what you got for us? Well, Isidore Fink or Finky, as we refer to him as. <laughs> yeah, I've been calling him Finky. <laughs> Is native to Poland. And like many, New York was the place to be for immigrants. You know, way to start a new life, new opportunities. And much like those immigrants, Fink himself was looking to start his own business. And this business was to start a laundromat. Old Finky here had saved up enough money to buy a large ground floor apartment for which he used for these business purposes and also his living quarters. So basically his whole life pretty much revolved around this building. He would work during the day and then once the workday was over, he would head into his apartment, which was attached to uh, the laundromat. This apartment is unfortunately where Isidore Fink spent his last moments of life. We find out that it's in his apartment that Isidore Fink, late in the evening of March 9th, 1929, was found dead with three gunshot wounds, two to his chest and one to his left hand. 
But this is no ordinary murder, Chris, because there was never a murder weapon found. But that's the least of the investigators' problems here. Because remember, we said this was a locked room mystery. So you could bet your sweet ass here, Chris, that old Finky's apartment was completely sealed shut. Apparently, he was very paranoid of being robbed, and therefore, he actually nailed his windows shut. So each and every window inside his apartment was nailed shut. There was no way in and no way out. And in addition to that, Fink's door had a number of locks on it, all locked from the inside. So there was no way of getting in or out of this apartment. But there was one small little way in, and that was via the transom window above the door. Now, a transom window is that small little rectangular window that you often see uh, above uh, doors. Generally, they hang on by a hinge. You can adjust it with um, some kind of stick if you can't reach it and whatnot. But it has a very small area, and it's nearly impossible for an adult to scurry their way through. Access denied. So here we are, Chris. We have a dead 30-year-old man inside of his apartment who was shot three times. There's no weapon. There's no sign of any intruders. And in addition to that, nothing was stolen from his apartment. What the hell's going on here? Yeah, Finky here uh, was perhaps what some would call a paranoid man, but for good reason, because robberies were pretty common there. And as a result, this led to Fink uh, having locks on his windows and doors, multiple bolt locks at that. He even said, and this is a, a quote, that some night I'll be robbed of everything, but they'll have a tough job of getting in. Fink, knowing what kind of neighborhood he was in, he was not taking any chances. But that's a dangerous little game he's playing because uh, you're setting yourself up for a very disastrous situation. God forbid there's a fire. That's true, and I'd imagine that there were plenty of those in the 1920s. Absolutely, especially because this is a laundromat. You got those dryers going and whatnot. He, I think he's playing a little game of Russian roulette. <laughs> but, Chris, uh, just to touch off what you said, uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, this was indeed a pretty rough area at the time. So, Finky had the right idea. Sooner or later, somebody was going to try to break in and steal his shit. So, that's why on the evening of March 9th, 1929, at roughly 10.30 p.m., Isidore Fink's neighbor, one Mrs. Lachlan Smith, heard some commotion coming from the hallway, if not from Fink's apartment itself. She claimed that she heard three loud thuds, and then at that point, she heard some scuffling, so she's like, enough's enough, I'm going to call the cops. So she calls the police, they show up on the scene, they find out, as we said before, that there's no way in to this place. They're stuck. I mean, they can't even ram through the door. That's how many locks are on this thing. So they have no way in. And if they try to get in through one of the windows, they're going to be out of luck because those things are nailed shut too. So the police defies a plan. They see the transom window and they think to themselves, this is our only way in. But none of us are going to be able to squeeze in. So what do they do, Chris? <laughs> they find a little local neighborhood kid and they shove his little ass through the window. And they say, kid, you go find out what's going on in there and open the door and let us in. And at that point, the little boy, he scurries down to the bottom of uh, Fink's apartment and unlocks the door. Enter the police. Access granted. Chris, I'm going to ask you right now. What is it 
that the good members of the NYPD found. Well, inside Fink's apartment, there on the floor was the body of Fink. He had two bullet wounds through his chest and another through his left wrist. Now, uh, of course, the first thought here would be, well, if we couldn't get into the apartment, how did anyone else? And where are they now? So you can imagine that the first thought that would come to mind when you find a body inside of a locked apartment with no way in or out, you're suspecting suicide. Indeed you are, but unfortunately there was a problem there, Chris, because there was no gun found. So riddle me this, if this was indeed a suicide and Fink shot himself three times, one in the wrist, which is odd, wouldn't there be a gun somewhere in that apartment? Well, this is starting to sound eerily similar to another locked door case that we did that was in a San Francisco apartment. And much like that one, the murder weapon or the weapon that was used to uh, take the person's life went missing. And much like that one, there was also initially a suspicion that perhaps it was suicide. But because, in, and in this case, it was stab wounds, the location of the wounds would suspect that it was not self-inflicted. And just like this case here, these wounds would not lead you to believe that it was self-inflicted. Who the hell's going to shoot themselves in the wrist first? What is this, just a test to see how it feels? And then blast yourself twice in the chest. Well, I would think one shot to the chest would be more than sufficient. I'm assuming if you shoot yourself in the chest at close range, you're going to hit the deck. Right, and if you recall, if any of the listeners have listened to the Oog de la Plaza case... They were suspecting that perhaps that Oog might have taken his own life, but then must have washed the knife and hit it somewhere. <laughs> yes, I remember that. And for any of you that are interested in listening to that case, that is BTC episode number 96. And as Chris said, that is on Hugh de la Plaza. But yeah, I remember them saying that. They thought there was a possibility that Oog stabbed himself multiple times and then took the time as he was dying to wash the knife. So that's just some shoddy police work. And I'm wondering if we have the same kind of police work going on in this case. But we'll hold off on that for just a moment. So Chris, uh, in addition to there being no weapon found, I also mentioned in the beginning of the episode that Fink had his cash register on him and all of his earnings from that day were still located within inside that register. So it appears that nothing was stolen so that would tell me that this is neither a robbery nor a suicide. Perhaps, just perhaps here, this might have been something a little more personal. I say that because it makes me think, perhaps there was some kind of scorned lover involved here. Excuse me? Because we do find out that Fink's entire family, wife included, were all back in Poland. So at the time period, Fink was here by himself. But it's noted that the landlord of the building said that he never saw Fink with any women. Or did he? Because it's reported that there were indeed two women 
roaming around in the hallway right next to his apartment door within a mere half hour of Fink's death. But these two women, to this day, have still never been identified. So we have no evidence to support that they were involved, but we have nothing to say that they weren't. I would suspect that these two women are people of interest at this point in the case. Because when you find yourself in a situation where a man is found dead in his apartment, the locked apartment, well, that could be suspicious into thinking that either Fink only opened the door to somebody that he might have known. Mm-hmm. Continue. Perhaps was shot and then scurried back into the apartment. Or, let's think about this, perhaps the perpetrator, the murderer, if you will, is still inside the apartment. Continue again. <laughs> what I'm saying is, well, and this would be a, a very freaky thought, that if somebody found a good enough hiding spot in this large first floor apartment, enough to elude the initial investigation, perhaps they were there the whole time. Ooh. Oh, I don't like that. That's one theory that I never even thought of. Uh, you might be onto something here because a lot of people do indeed believe that the police botched this investigation. So uh, I'm wondering now, maybe someone was indeed hiding in the apartment. And then once the investigation was over and once they cleared the body out of there, they scurried off into the hallway and made their exit. That is quite interesting indeed. Because we should mention, we do know that Whoever fired this weapon was in very close proximity to Isidore Fink because there was gun residue on his hand and on his chest as well. So that means one thing and one thing only. That gun was pressed up against his body as it was fired. So the theory that someone might have shot him from that transom window out in a hallway whilst he was inside his apartment, that kind of has no weight to it because there's no possible way that gun residue would be on his body, or shall I say, his person. I think, Chris, I'm getting very technical now. If that gun was not fired right on his body. Well, let me add a little something else to this, because you have to think about this, right? And, and when you mentioned the two women that were spotted, when you're in a situation where you have someone paranoid, like the way Fink was, they're not opening this door for anybody unless they know him. And he even says as much that only people allowed in his apartment were the ones that he knew. So that is one thing to think about, but also think about this. Somebody could have been waiting for Fink in his apartment when he came in, somehow getting inside, perhaps through that transom as mentioned, waiting for Fink, then killing him, and then exiting the same way, or staying hidden in the apartment, as I had mentioned prior, because you would imagine that for someone to have to break into Fink's apartment, being as locked down as it is, would make a big ruckus. We do know that the neighbor, Lachlan Smith, did hear a sound, but I think it would be a little far-fetched for somebody to have broken into his apartment, killed him, and then exited. I think this is someone that was either waiting for him in his apartment, or perhaps somebody that he let into his apartment. However, it was noted in the police investigation that no fingerprints were found in Fink's apartment, other than his own. 
Now, I mean, there's definitely a possibility that somebody could have been wearing gloves, certainly. But remember, with that transom window, it would be very difficult for a grown adult to fit through that. Because remember, the police had to get a small child to assist them in order to uh, scurry through that window and then unlock the door for them. If indeed the perpetrator made their way out of Fink's apartment via that transom window, it had to be either a small child or... Like you, Chris, a midget. I'm six foot two. <laughs> Chris, please, that's neither here nor there. But either of those two options are very creepy, too. I mean, if this was a child killer, my God, that's horrifying. He did it. It's not far-fetched to think that a child was at least doing someone's bidding in terms of perhaps sneaking in and unlocking the door to allow another person in. There seems to be a bit more possibilities than we think. <laughs> Indeed, there is. And remember, we're in uh, New York City in 1929, so uh, a seven-year-old kid probably has five years in the union at this point. (laughs) (laughs) A steam fitter at the age of seven. But in all seriousness, kids were different back then. They grew up a lot faster, man. So I'm not completely dismissing that theory. But the one thing that interests me, and I talked to you about this off-air, is that, uh, you know, the little nosy neighbor, Mrs. Lachlan Smith there, she said that she heard three thuds. She did not say that she heard three gunshots, which would be a very distinctive loud sound. So that got me thinking, did the gunman use a silencer? And if not, how did he muffle the sound, oh, the gun? Hmm, Interesting theory. I actually had not thought about the three thuds potentially being the three gunshots. So yeah, I, I, I think you're right if that was something that would be definitely more defined in sound, that this this was silenced or muffled in some way so i think there is something to that because you would expect gunshots to be pretty recognizable otherwise yes indeed so uh makes me think was old mrs lachlan smith more than just a nosy body could she have something to do with this Oh, you suspect old, uh, old Smithy, huh? <laughs> I don't know. Chris, uh, I mean, all I can tell you is that the NYPD were just as baffled as us because we find out that in 1931, two years after the murder of Isidore Fink, the police commissioner actually says that he believes that this will always be an insoluble mystery, meaning that it's pretty much never going to be solved. And what a premonition from Kamish there because here we are nearly a century later and it's still unsolved. And I think at this point we can guarantee that that's going to remain unsolved. Indeed, indeed. But, uh, you know, we went over quite a number of theories tonight, Chris. So uh, I'm going to ask you to lay it on the line for us. Bud, we need to know who put the stinky on old Finky? Oh. Well, when you put it that way, I'm suspecting foul play here. I'm toying with the two theories, one that he knew the person, and the other that somebody got into his apartment before he arrived. I'm going to go with this wasn't an acquaintance of Fink's. And I think he allowed them into the room. And perhaps this person knew him well enough that they knew how to lock his doors after they left. Very good point. Very good point. Perhaps he had a key or something. 
Yeah. Well, what says you, Bill? <laughs> oh, thank you, Chris. I didn't even have to prompt you. I definitely don't think that a Fink was shot through that window. Uh, I highly doubt it was a kid or a midget, so I'm throwing those both out the window. <laughs> Not the kid or the midget, <laughs> but the, uh, the the theory. Uh, right out the transom. <laughs> right out the transom. That's only they could fit. But, um, uh, Chris, I think I'm with you on this one. I, I think, uh, and, and this might be a little more scandalous than uh, the periodical that's on here. I think uh, that those two women that were lurking in the hallway had something to do with this. Perhaps they were both scorned lovers of Fink that uh, caught wind that he was seeing both of them. And they have had it. Because even though the landlord said that he had never seen him with a woman, you know, if his whole family's in Poland and uh, his wife included in that, perhaps Fink was feeling a little lonely on one fateful New York City evening, and thus began weaving himself a flirtatious web that he could no longer get out of. So, my theory is, those two women shot Fink in the hallway and somehow, someway, muffled the sound of that gun. And at that point, Fink stumbled into his apartment and immediately locked the door. Or maybe they got to him as he was unlocking in a door, and that's why the door was open. They shoot him three times, which would make sense. Maybe they shot him in the hand as he was opening the door, shot him two more times in the chest. He turns around, closes the door, locks it quickly, and then falls onto the floor and ultimately dies right there. And that would indeed make sense because there were no fingerprints in the apartment. There was no murder weapon found. And there were no suspects found on or around the property. So my guess is that these women shot him in the hallway and just split. I think Finky had a little more going on behind the scenes than we know. That's pretty good because I think um, unless there was some sort of like gunpowder or residue found out in the hallway or near the door, that would certainly prove i think that theory for sure but yeah because he got blasted three times at close range right there's no doubt at all that this person was next to him at close range which leads us to believe that he that he knew this person or these people i could run with that i could run with the fact that he was shot and then he got into his apartment and locked it behind him i do think that it would make sense that old finky here was putting a little starch in someone's bloomers that he shouldn't have been. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately, Finky was the one that got starch. (laughs) And uh, someone did not like it. But uh, Chris, that's it, man. That is the story of Isidore Fink. So with that said, Chris, let me get the rundown so I can make sure I'm not going to be part of the next locked door mystery out here in the BTCRF. You want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us on Facebook or Instagram between the Cracks podcast. And if you'd like to become one of our lovely patrons, please feel free to click on the link in the show notes. Now, Chris, with all that said, what do you say we hop back in the BTCTM and get the hell out of 1920s New York City? Bud, let's wish the fine, fine people out in podcast land. Me first. Oh.